0: Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Cliff Gray of Flat Tops Wilderness Guides. Cliff, how you doing?
1: Good. Thanks for having me, Jay.
0: Yeah, I look forward to having you on here. Uh, sounds like you got a little bit of the Colorado crud. Um, I know I was sick at the Western Hunting Expo, or, or afterwards, I should say, and um you're up there i know in that uh, gypsum colorado area and sounds like you've got uh, a little bit of the crud are you on the men yeah yeah no i'm on
1: the upswing i just picked it up for my kids it seems like everybody around here has got it but uh your your listeners will probably have to bear with a little a little coughing into the microphone but at least it won't it won't come to the speakers and get them i'm sure but um, <laughs> so it should be good but no i'm on the upswing you know how it is right uh, what do they say mountain climbers look the worst on the on the on the descent, right so i'm almost out of, the, out of it I just i just sound the worst that it's been so far
0: <laughs> so where are we at with conditions up there i i left uh a week or so ago and um lots and lots of snow looking like a great year um man we've needed it up there it's been dry tell us tell us what's going on
1: yeah so i would say you know <clears throat> if you look at the last five or six years this is for sure the heaviest snowpack that I've seen, at least in this 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 part of the mountains. Um, you know, <laughs> we were coming off probably the least I'd seen in my whole life. Uh, so you know, in 2018. So it's good. Like we for sure needed the water. Um, you know, the last like two or three weeks we've had big we've had big melt offs too. So I think the Winter Range is you know okay um i yesterday i was up at the ranch and there's quite a few mule deer down low and they seem to be like good body condition (laughs) the only thing i can think of you know i just don't know what um what will end up happening is if you looked at the brows and stuff going into um into winter and like late fall there's just very little growth on it because it was so dry so i think for us we're probably okay but i don't you know i don't know how You know, southern Colorado will fare. I'm not that uh, up on the Gunnison Basin, that sort of thing. But I would think that in some of the drier parts of Colorado, like down in Pagosa, that area, the deer, deer in particular, probably didn't go into winter with great body condition, and then now they're facing a fair amount of snow. So, So I don't know. I think it probably matters a lot
0: between, you know, what happens between now and May. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've got the April second deadline for the Colorado regulations kind of staring us in the face here. we're a couple weeks out and um, you're my first podcast that that I've done on Colorado. Um, if you would, uh, I know there's been a few changes in Colorado. If you would kind of go over uh, you know Colorado in general, just go over in in general terms, you know how their draw works and what have you, and then point out any, uh, changes, uh, that you see in the regulations that people might need to be aware of?
1: Yeah, so I'll kind of zip through the, the main ones, because there were some pretty, I wouldn't say drastic, but there's some significant ones that, that occurred this year, and there's a lot of discussion about it in the last six months, um, so they did make some changes, probably, honestly, the, the most important one, Jay, um, is that the deadline is April second, but it's no longer midnight. It's eight p.m. So that's probably the okay. most important one for all the procrastinators out there.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, um, are you are you specifically? I, I almost felt like you were speaking to me, Cliff. <laughs> no, I'm,
1: <laughs> what, I, what I'm speaking to is all the hunters. They're going to call me at nine o'clock on April second. And uh, ask right. me why the why the, the why the website's not working anymore. But anyways, exactly. so that's just it's one to keep in mind. With that's a minor change, honestly. So uh, to go through the bigger changes, they did pass this Future Generations Bill, which was really primarily a resident license increase. So that did pass. There hadn't been a resident license cost increase in several years. So basically, resident tax went up eight dollars. Um, probably. The biggest change that people are going to notice this year is on the points. (laughs) So there's two two of them, and they're both fee-related. So on sheep, goat, and moose points, the point fee went to $50 for residents and it went to $100 for non-residents, and that's drastically different than 2018 when it was like $3 to apply for each one of those species. And um, the other big change on the fee structure is that now as a non-resident, well, and as a resident, but the cost is not as significant. Is that you do have to have a qualifying license <laughs> for most people applying for sheep, goat, moose, deer, elk. What they're going to end up doing is buying a small game license, small game license to fulfill that requirement. It's basically eighty bucks. Um, so those How are big changes, eighty. Okay, so that's if, eighty. In, so in 80 order to change. apply,
0: in in order to apply, you have to have a. <laughs> A qualifying license, and the cheapest option is the small game license, right, right, And so what about you know, a, fishing, the... a fishing license cover that or no?
1: No, it doesn't and they have', okay. them, they have them listed they have them listed in there, but you know the, the only other one that I think might <clears throat> be of interest to somebody that was like in a bordering state is that a spring turkey license does qualify. so if you come turkey hunting, you, know, you might be able to at least utilize the license. Um, in that regard, but if you can't, um, it's basically. I think most non-residents are just going to have to view that as another is, is essentially a fee slash cost
0: for applying in Colorado. So in other words, does the, that make the sense? The fees to apply, yeah, the fees to apply are going up, and you're going to leave some money on the table. It's been very very easy in years past with the three dollar application fee. Um, <laughs> it's got now more cost to apply in Colorado. Yeah, so, and I'll give you, like, the brief history on it, Jay.
1: What happened was in 2018, non-residents used to have to post up all the money, right, for the tags. So they took right. they took that, off, that requirement off, and then what they got is they got a huge glut of applications on sheep, goat, and moose. And there was a big... Uh, kind of outcry from all the people who had a bunch of points. Uh, I know also the the Outfitters Association was was kind of nervous about that also um, because basically there was all of a sudden a a huge influx in the applications for those species in particular because it was so cheap to apply. And it was always cheap to apply, but you had to post the money up, which is a a hindrance for most folks. So going into this season, they knew they are going to have to, just because of the pressure from people with points, outfitters, you, pretty much everybody. Um, the only people that didn't have a problem with it were the people who didn't have any points and were just starting to apply. So most of the community wanted some change, and they for sure were not going to go back to having to post the money up because uh, there were some economic issues with that because they were having to pay credit card fees on both ends of that transaction. And when I say they, I mean the, the CPW. So that was off the table, so basically, these preference point um, fees and uh, the qualifying license are kind of what, what they're viewing as a middle ground. <clears throat> it kind of makes it, you know, it's obviously a source of revenue for them, but it also makes you kind of have a fair amount of skin in the game to apply for these points. Um, and that's, that's the happy medium that they, they got. I think most people are happy with it, to be honest, Jay. <clears throat> but it is, you know, it kind of puts us more in line with the other states. I think is the the reality. you know, And some of the, intri- the intricacies of that is that there is no longer a point fee for, for elk and deer. Uh, it only applies to sheep, goat, and moose. And then the other thing is you can actually opt out of it. So you can apply, like let's say you have 15 points for sheep. You can apply for sheep as a non-resident. And then when you apply, you can opt out of that preference point fee. So you can still apply with your 15 points but if you opt out, you don't have to pay the hundred dollars for the point, but you also don't don't gain it for that year, that year.
0: Okay, which should be crazy to do. Why would you do that? <clears throat>
1: you know, I've had several people kind of figure out the math that I've talked to, and I think really what it is is when you look, it's the the whole. It's like a it it's, It makes my head hurt when I look at all the math around how the actual weighted point. Deal works in Colorado but you can basically figure it out and the difference between having 16 and 17 points in terms of your probability of drawing a sheep goat or moose tag it's not that significant um you know it might it might only like let's say this is like a rough num- number Jay but let's say on the average sheep unit uh on the average year with the average set of applications somebody with 17 points has probably got an eight or nine percent chance of drawing, Or let's say that they have eight eight percent chance with sixteen points right if they have seventeen yeah. points, it might only be like an eight and a half percent chance so it's not like it's not like there's right. you know the, the difference between sixteen and seventeen is huge, so the, right. but it still makes a difference particularly over time because you want to climb the ladder but I think you know if you the only situation I could see is if you say, you know, if you like, let's say, take goat hunt, goat hunting, right? Let's say that you knew that your body just has only got two years left of being able to do a goat hunt. You might just say, "Hey, I'll keep my two hundred bucks for the next two years and just, just hopefully, I'll draw a tag." You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No. So I That get that
0: would be the only. Um. <laughs> does that go ahead? Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to cost a little bit more, but you think it's probably a good change, and from people you've talked to, they like the change. I know the people that didn't want to float all of the tag fees and send in those checks for, um, you know, the, to, to hunt, it's definitely, yes, you have a little more upfront cost, but you don't have to float those, that big money. Um, any other changes out there?
1: Yeah, so on that one, we kind of covered the, the point one. One that I think is kind of overlooked a little bit is that they changed their refund policy a little bit. They actually created a window uh, of what they call reversal, which means that if you draw a tag... So it used to be that if you drew a tag, like let's say you drew 44 tag and you, you burnt 20 points, right? You find out that you drew it, and then something comes up and you can't go, right? It used to be that you had to choose between... Uh, paying, the, paying or eating the cost of the tag or getting your points back in terms of a refund, right? And you still had to do it, I think it's 30, 30 or 45 days before the season started. But you had to choose either or, which really for a deer tag doesn't matter that much because the tags aren't that, that expensive. But like for a goat tag, it'd be significant, right? A guy drew the tag, he's got to return it for whatever reason, and he'd have to either eat the 2,000 bucks or he'd have to lose all of his points. Now they have a window, so from when you draw to June 14th, you can actually just give them the tag back and you'll, you'll get both back, which I think, I think is kind of fair. I mean, stuff happens in life between when you put in for the draw and then when you draw. <clears throat> and the other thing is some guys draw multiple tags. You know, I mean, they, they get really lucky, but then, they, then it's hard to figure out your schedule and stuff. So I think that's kinda nice. You got uh, basically two weeks there where you can get everything back if you if you need to. So it's something for people to keep in mind. Um, some other big changes. I mean to me one of the one of the biggest changes, uh, Jay, and I'm like you know, I'm not the most I would say that I fling a lot of crap at the C P W about their policies and stuff. And I would give them a ton of praise for this one because I like I know there's some guys, particularly local to my community, that worked on it, and that's that they took non-resident bear tags from three hundred to a hundred dollars, <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's a huge change, and I think it will promote uh, more harvest of bears, which, uh, you know, I I don't take it take it for granted because it's really hard for these guys to make those kind of changes on predators now, so I have a lot of praise for them on that, um, and the other thing they did. Is they changed a lot of those bear tags from A tags to B tags. So in some situations, you can actually get two of them. Um, so that's another. You know, they they really they really did take a big step in promoting bear hunting here. And I think that, I mean, to me, it was like a it was a, a very pleasant surprise because it means they're not only listening to people uh, at these meetings, but they're also trying to trying to promote some more opportunity in the future, particularly on the elk herd.
0: Yeah, which is um, also nice, right in the face of Colorado politics, to be able to do some of those changes, and it's like, oh, okay. we oh, You know, we, yeah. thought, we thought they were being swayed by one side so much, and then you come to find out, okay, they're actually going to try and promote the harvest of, you know, getting some more bears harvested, which is, I think, a good thing, because I'm hearing from... Everyone that I know there in Colorado, there in that Roaring Fork Valley, just the bears have just exploded. Um, actually, all over the state I'm talking to people, and they're just talking about bears, bears, bears. And uh, the reality is those same bears, you know, the prized Colorado tro- you know, elk herd uh, is, is being affected by those bears. So it, it's uh, refreshing to see that they – saw that as an issue and they addressed that and uh, allowed non-residents to pay a cheaper price number one and um the fact that i learned over there doing some research around the odd six ranch like yeah you can get uh, two different licenses and you know one of them being a list b license and potentially have two bear tags in your pocket
1: yeah yeah And a matter of fact actually over there you have to look at it, Jim. Not uh, I have to look at the actual. But a lot of the private lands, they actually move to C, so you could actually have that. You could do that, and then you could hunt uh, public too on on another tag. So you could potentially have more than two. But either way, there's been they've really tried to open the availability of that. And I agree with all the points you said. I know we've talked about it before in the past. Um, <clears throat> but I also realize like it's hard for these guys to do that. Like, believe me on that change somebody is taking some heat uh, within the CPW uh, from non-hunter oh, yeah. groups. So, uh, so I think, you know, I go to, you go to these uh, meetings where everybody uh, has an opinion uh, on what the CPW is doing, and most of it is really about, you know, I want my piece of the pie to be bigger than the outfitters, or I want my piece of pie to be bigger than the non-residents, or blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of, like, infighting slash divvying things up. This policy, to me is really cool because it's really not about any of that. It's not like the, the petty stuff about dividing stuff up. It's really about growing the whole pie. And to, so to me, that's a huge, huge change. I mean, these other changes obviously are significant, the monetary ones on the fees and stuff, but to me, that's probably the best change that's made in the whole, the whole book. Um, but uh, so that's a good one. The other ones I think that uh, are, are, are more like management-related stuff and if you look through the other changes, most of them, and <clears throat> it's kind of related to this bear thing, most of them are about reducing female elk harvest in certain parts of the state, particularly uh, the mountain ranges that we live in. So there's two I mean, the, the one that's most uh, forthright is that in several of the historical OTC archery units, particularly around, like, uh, you know, where you live over there in Carbondale and Basalt and then all the way over here to the, the Vale Valley, 44, 444, 45, and 47, all those over-the-counter archery tags are no longer either sex. They're bull-only. Um, so that's something for people to think about if they hunt this this area. Um, and I don't know. <clears throat> I can't speak for them, but I would think that that might be the start of something that progresses, for, you know, more statewide as a management thing. Um. But uh, so that's, a, that's one, and that's really just about reducing female elk harvest. Um, and then a lot of the other, if you look at through the elk changes, like the combination of units, the changes of cow tags from uh, B units to or B licenses to A licenses, all of that is about uh, reducing uh, female harvest of elk in, in several of these big herds. So the bear thing and that, I think, are two pretty significant. You know biological slash management changes that have been made, and I think that's it's awesome. might have been a little late, but like I'm like I'm not gonna throw crap at that people that are trying to trying to get on the right path, so I'm, I'm impressed with those but and those that really covers the changes, Jay
0: Cliff, you know, I probably should have for those that are listening that maybe you know I obviously know you've been on the podcast a bunch. Uh, but we probably should take a second here before we dive in a little bit further and uh, get a little bit of background on you and your operation. Uh, so if you'd take a second here to tell the listeners a little bit about uh, where you operate and uh, about your operation to kind of lay the groundwork, uh, you know, where you're coming from.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> 95% of my outfitting is in the flat Tops school and that's... Uh, in Western Colorado, or you know, Western Central—I guess you'd call it—outside of Vail in Eagle, um, basically uh, north of the Vail Valley, um, all of it's wilderness stuff. Uh, I shouldn't say all of it, but ninety-five percent of it. So it's all pack-in, horse and mule um, wilderness uh, hunting trips. Um, you know, our our stuff is on the elk side, very very much leans towards over-the-counter, um, high availability tags all of that. Our deer is pretty good in that regard too. Um, a lot of seasons we have an availability for tags. Some of the later seasons you have to have three or four points, particularly as a non-resident. But it's all packing stuff into the wilderness, uh, horse and foot only access. Um, and they're not, uh, they're not easy hunts, but I would say that if you think about, uh, if you have any nostalgia for how guys hunted elk 30 or 40 years ago, we're basically doing it the exact same way. Um, so, uh, it's uh, it's that type of hunt. Um, I do do a little, uh, little private land stuff late in the late seasons. Um, but even then, we still hunt a lot of the wilderness. We hunt from our lodge, and we, and we ride into the wilderness and hunt that same, that same stuff. Um, I, you know, we probably uh, have I don't know half my business is drop camps, which is we basically pack you into an established wall tent camp. It's got every all the gear in there for your hunt. And then we drop you off, and you're on your own. It's kind of a do-it-yourself hunt. Uh, You hunt on your own, and then we pack elk uh, and deer out for you. And then, of course, we pack you out at the end of the hunt. Um, The rest of my business is guided stuff. Um, Some of that's out of the lodge, as I said, but most of it's out of the wilderness camp. So we pack into a camp. We hunt from there. Um, Some of that uh, we hunt from the camps hiking. Some of it we hunt uh, daily on horseback. It just kind of depends on the conditions. Does that give you an overview, Jay?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I mean, it's it's very very common in your operation that you know someone's going to be riding a horse or a mule up into the high country. They're going to be staying in an outfitter style camp. Um, everything that you imagine with the quintessential you know backcountry elk hunt, deer hunt. That's you. That's your. That's what you do.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I think you nailed it. That's that's pretty much the the deal. Okay, and. um I, so let's dive back into the Colorado regs. Uh one thing I'd like you to explain is the hybrid draw. Yeah, no problem. Um and what I'll do, Jay, uh yeah,
1: I can I can explain it kinda of, I'll I'll go over it and then if you want I can go over an example to kinda of, to yeah. to get it explained a little bit better. So basically, the hybrid draw was created, um, going back to kind of what I was talking about whenever policies are made, um, it was created to appease um, a kind of a complaint or concern that a lot of people had that because of point creep, a lot of these units that were hard to hunt, um, if people started applying now, basically, if you looked at the math, there was going to be no... There's no chance that they're gonna ever draw the tag um and this is a challenge that Colorado is gonna it has in a lot of a lot in I mean it's a pretty serious issue on sheep goat moose but also the high point elk and deer units um anyways the hybrid draw was created to appease part of that and what it is was they took they took a select uh set of hunts that had historically been hard to draw I think the uh, the 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 rule they used was if it took a resident more than 10 points on average to draw that tag for the trailing three years average, right? The key thing to think about when you look at the hybrid draw is that 10-point and three-year average was based off 2009. So when you look at the units that are, or the hunts that are in the hybrid draw, they don't necessarily reflect the hardest units to draw in the state. Uh, they reflect the hardest units to draw at that point, which is 10 years ago, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why they haven't changed that or why it hasn't been uh, – those those hunts haven't changed very much. I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you why that is. Um, and they may have changed a little bit, and I'm, I haven't been informed of it, but I, I, I can look at those units and tell you that particularly on deer, there's a bunch of very hard units to draw. Uh, that are not on that list so it 's just something for pe- people to keep in mind they're they 're very good units, but they 're not necessarily always the best in Colorado um, so anyways, they put this all these hunts on here that qualified they 're basically difficult hunts to draw, and they said we 're going to do we 're going to take twenty percent of the tag allocation and we 're basically going to make it random in the hybrid draw <laughs> so you can still have a chance. The only uh, rule was you had to have at least five. You have to have at least five preference points to enter the hybrid draw right so that's the that's the qualifying deal if you you can't do it with less than that so basically for a unit that's that usually draws for twenty points, you might draw it and you only have seven points or you only have six or whatever if you put in for the hybrid draw um, the thing about the hybrid draw that is a little bit confusing, I think is that it's really it really only uh, benefits residents. Um, when you look at the, I mean, technically, the way the rules are set up, a non-resident could draw one uh, one of that that twenty percent allocation to the hy- hybrid draw, but but under almost all conditions, they're not going to. And the reason is is that the hybrid draw, when it was set up, <clears throat> it was contingent on that the it would not break the non-resident 20% allocation, right? So what you have is usually, so the hybrid draw is after, (laughs) excuse me, the hybrid draw is after the normal preference point draw. And on deer and elk, uh, antelope, uh, those draws are strictly preference points based, right? So what happens in that preference point uh, draw is non-residents, are generally going to draw the tags before residents because they have more points than they put in for these high-point yeah. units. So if a unit has 10 tags, the 20% allocation to non-residents is going to be 20%. That's all. The hybrid draw can't pop it up above 20%. So what happens in all cases that I know of, I mean, it's basically a 100% scenario, is that a non, the non-resident tags get drawn in the preference point draw and then when those twenty percent tags go to the hybrid draw, the non-resident allocation is fulfilled. So really, the only people that are going to draw those the hybrid draw tags are residents. Does that make sense, Jay?
0: Yeah. So yeah, it's in the go ahead in the general draw, tell the listeners how the general draw works with the preference point, and Colorado is one of those states where you have to have a particular amount of points in order to draw that particular unit, or you don't have a chance. In other words, there's, it's not like Arizona where, you know, 5% go to random and 5% go to those with the most points. Colorado is a true preference point state where, you know, you have to have the, the maximum allotted points for that unit or else you don't have a chance. Explain how that, you know, the, the general draw works and explain how, you know, the how you have your first choice, your second choice, third choice, to explain how that works. Right. So <clears throat> to me, the best way to explain it, Jay, is they basically, so
1: everybody applies for uh, this hunt, right, like a uh, hunt code, right, and everybody has a certain amount of preference points. for. Then We're talking about deer, elk, um, and antelope only, um, because sheep, goat, moose, we have a different system. But for those species, everybody lines up, in front of the guy with the tags and they have X amount of points and they line up from the highest points to the lowest points, preference points, right? I'm just, this is hypothetical. You don't actually do this, but this is how it yeah. works. They'd all line up. The first guy has the most points. The second guy has the next amount of points, etc. The guy, the person with the tag is going to hand those tags out down the line until he runs out, right? So it's, it's all strictly based on how many points you have for those species, right? Everybody, and this is the first, everybody that puts that as first choice, right? So they're going to go through all the first choice applicants with lined up according to the number of preference points they have, right? And then they're going to come back and do it with second choice the same way. uh, If you, well, it's basically random and your second choice if you put in that. So for like, for instance, like, my third season used to draw out like almost, third season buck tag used to draw out almost perfectly at zero points, right? So basically, you know, everybody everybody that put it in as a first choice, even, even if they didn't have any points, so you'd be in the very back of the line with your zero points, and then maybe people in the front would have two or three points, right? Well, they would give out the tags, and they'd get all the way through that line. So everybody with the first choice would basically get a tag, right? But then, when they got to the second, the second uh, choice applicants for that hunt, there might be a hundred people, but they might have like one or two tags left. So it's basically random to, vote to that second to the second choice applicants, right? Um, if they didn't get through all that all the first choice line, then none of the second choice guys
0: would draw. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And then explain how uh, I believe if you put your second choice. Uh, you can actually uh, draw a tag, but it does not affect your preference points. Explain how that works.
1: Yeah, so what you can do is, and this this occurs a lot, and it's it's important for people to understand, particularly for people who who have accumulated points. A lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's, quite a few hunts and they tend to be hunts with poor access or something else that makes them makes them a difficult hunt uh, they don't necessarily have poor quality or anything you just they're, they're, people don't have a preference for them as much because, for whatever reason so basically um, what, what happens is, is you can put in the preference point code for the species as your first choice right and then you can put in the, uh, that hunt as your second choice so what will happen is they 'll give you the preference point as your first choice, and then if that tag runs down into se like they, it runs when I say run down, it means it gets through all the first choice applicants and they still have tags left over they 'll give you that tag as a second choice and you 'll still retain your your preference points it 's a good strategy for guys, particularly for re- so residents have a lot of access to this but um, but even non residents basically um it gives you the option where you can you can hunt a, a draw a mule deer tag each year and still build up points in some some certain cases. Like a lot of times, you're going to have to. It's not necessarily going to be a good rifle tag every year, or whatever. You might have to. Like a lot of archery tags will draw at a second choice, so you can you can keep you can put in for your preference points and keep gaining them, and then still hunt uh, deer with a bow every year. Um, so that's the way to do it. The thing that <clears throat> You have to keep in mind, and this—I know this gets a few people. Is a lot of people will see that it draws second choice, and let's say they have ten preference points, right? And they look at the stats and they say, "Well, this tag draws second choice." So if I put this hunt as my first choice on the application, I'm going to draw it, keep my preference points, and um, I'll draw the tag, and because it, it runs, it, it always draws out as second choice. But that's not how it works. You have to put that hunt in as your second choice behind the preference point code
0: does that make sense Gotcha. yeah so you have to put the preference point code as your first choice and then you have to put that your second choice uh you can't actually apply for a hunt and draw it on your second choice and keep your point like you can't have it yeah yeah
1: yeah exactly you can't put it on because some people some people will look at the stats they'll see that oh this tag draws as a second choice so they're not going to take my preference points no if you put it in the first choice line regardless of if second choice people end up with the tag when the draw goes out you still have burnt your preference points so you have to be really careful about that
2: guys i want to take a second here to thank the sponsors of the podcast i want to thank gohunt.com gear shop my friend cody nelson of 25 plus years is the optics manager at gohunt.com gear shop and you can reach him if you have any optical needs at all whether it be binoculars spotting scopes tripods any glassing techniques anything you want to talk to cody about you can reach him at 702-847-8747 you can also send him directly an email at optics at gohunt.com he has promised me that he'll take care of the J. Scott Outdoors listeners if you mention me, uh, and he's been doing a great job over the last handful of months, and I get emails and direct messages on Instagram almost daily from customers that have bought optics through Cody at GoHunt, so reach out to him. I also want to thank GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, the Insider is the best Western hunting resource out there for draw odds and harvest statistics and strategy articles. Obviously, we're right in the middle of application season and GoHunt.com Insider is the best resource out there. Uh, make sure to go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and you're automatically going to get a $50 GoHunt Shop gift card. I'd also like to thank Kuyu.com, that's K-U-I-U.com, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting for their sponsorship of this podcast. That is the gear that I use on all my hunts. Guys, I want to tell you about a special promotion that Canyon Coolers is doing. Uh, There's two ways to enter, and they're they're giving away several prizes. The first place winner is going to win a Canyon Coolers Outfitter 55-quart cooler with a retail value of $229 uh, with an SC Wake Deck top and Hot Hands gear. The second and third place winners will all win a Canyon Coolers Tumbler and Hot Hands products. There are several ways you can enter. Uh, one is on social media. You can like or follow at Canyon Coolers, uh, and you can leave a comment or tag a friend. Also for this uh, promotion the normal J Scott 19 promo code usually gets you a 10% discount at Canyon Coolers it's actually for a, a week's period of time going to get you a 15% discount to enter this giveaway follow the link in the show notes and enter your email address the winner will be announced on March 21st and will be notified by email it's open to continental US only the cooler and other gear have been provided by canyoncoolers.com, SC Wake and Hot Hands. I want to thank Canyon Coolers for their sponsorship and I want to thank you guys for jumping in and trying to win win these great prizes. I also want to thank phonescope.com and if you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount and onxmaps.com if you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get a 20% discount. X is what I use on all my hunts to differentiate between private and public land. I like to be able to switch back and forth between aerial and topo. Uh, they have a great breadcrumb feature and it's basically replaced the handheld GPS.
0: Cliff, let's talk a little bit about uh, the units that you hunt specifically and some of the hunts that you think coming up this year are going to be good ones, Uh, and any particular areas or openings that you see uh, that, you know, if if people want to hunt deer or elk, uh, you know, they can call you and chat with you about. So let's kind of start with the units in the area that you hunt. Yeah, so the units that I hunt are 25,
1: 26, 24, primarily 25. They're all... Flat tops units, and a lot of the tags are actually in the same hunt code. Um, but probably the the best season to me to hunt multiple species is third season. Um, and we've talked about these hunts before. Um, they're combination hunts. You have to draw the deer tag, but there's probably 95 percent chance you can draw that tag. And that is one of those tags I kind of alluded to earlier that the reason it draws pretty easily is because the accent like. A big majority of 25 is very difficult to hunt without horses, uh, and so it draws pretty easily because of that. Um, and so I do have some third-season hunts open in the in the wilderness. In their combo hunts, you get the elk tag over the counter, and then you draw the deer tag. Um, you know, in a year, like I would say the last two years um, have been both ends of the spectrum. You know, in 2017, third season, it, was, it felt like it was you know, summertime still. And then this last year, we kind of had more of a typical snow accumulation and typical temperatures. A year like 2018 in my wilderness camp, I mean, very close to 100%, 100% of people are going to harvest <coughs> one, one of those species. And then um, in a good year like last year, close to 70% of guys actually killed both.
0: Um, so that's what you're so looking at. So are you telling you know, me that you... In your unit, you can hunt, I mean, third season in Colorado is what everybody's after. Are you telling me that, in you know, it's um, basically a 95 to 98, I'm looking on the Go Hunt Insider, and it says 98% chance to draw a third season hunt with you? Yeah, so that's correct. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of
1: units, like, I mean, the, the thing, the reason, like, the problem with, like, 25 in particular on deer is that if you draw the tag, and you either don't know the access points or you don't have a way to get in the, you know, the, the wilderness, I mean, you're limiting yourself. You can only hunt, like, probably 5%, 10% of the unit. And then that, you know, that, well, let's say it's 15%, 20% of the unit. That percent of the unit is, like, you need to have on-X maps because you need to be able to, like, know exactly where all the private property is and stuff. You know what I mean, Jay? So you're going to find right. units like 25. The reason they draw easy Uh, easier on deers because that the access is difficult you know what i mean you can't hunt the whole unit it's not like a i mean if you compare it to 44 you know just across the highway it's going to draw astronomically different i mean part of that is because they they don't put as many tags in there and they manage it for bigger deer but another big part of it is you can drive you can drive around 85 percent of 44 um and it's easy to get around you know so
0: so, yeah, a lot of... Talk about the quality nice. of buck, like, you know, with that being said, I mean, y- you guys are known for having some of the biggest bucks around. Talk about that, and maybe some of the, you know, obviously on years where it's hot and dry, it can be a little tough, but, you know, last year you had snows here and there, and, and, you know, pretty good deer hunting.
1: Yeah, and we, and we always do have pr- uh, pretty good deer hunting. Um, <clears throat> our deer hunting... I mean, most of the most of the bucks we harvest throughout the season are going to be, you know, 150 inch deer up to 180 inch deer. But every year, like, c- we kill one or two deer that are bigger than that, and we've had years where we've killed deer way bigger than that. So we have, you know, we kill nice deer on average, and then we periodically kill, you know, as big a deer as, as they they get on the planet. You know, um, so the thing is, is that. Uh, it's, it's, there's a, there's a random element because it's the wilderness and the things can survive. You know, it's the same genetics, you know, 35, 25, 26, all that country. It's the exact same genetics that are across the highway in 44 that everybody talks about. The only thing is that for a buck to live to five and a half, six years old on the north side of the highway on 35, 25, 26, is he's got to be pretty lucky and sneaky and hide out a big proportion of his life right Whereas 44 there's Mm -hmm. a lot lower harvest so you just have a higher percentage of the bucks that get to that age class um so that's the they're the exact same deer genetically there's there's no no difference and i've hunted them in both both areas and i mean they they have a lot of similarities actually even in their the looks of them um so that's what you what you have is that it's just a it's harder to hunt, and the deer, the kind of the management system on the north side is that the deer have to, uh, have to kind of manage themselves to some extent. You're, you're really you're really hunting down survivors, you know what I mean, Jay?
0: Yeah. I mean, you grew and up yep. right there in that area. You grew up in 44 just across the highway, and so, um, you know, you, you, you know that area as good as anybody. So, you know, it's still mind-boggling to me that, you know, you could have almost a hundred percent chance to have a third season buck tag in your pocket, you know, go elk hunting and have, you know, I mean, almost every year you could get a third season buck tag in your pocket and have a chance. I mean, I've seen the pictures of over the years of some of the bucks. I mean, that one non-typical you guys shot there was unbelievable Um, a few years back. I mean, it was well over 200 inches.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, you know, that's like a 200, and almost 30-inch deer, and so they show up. I mean, a lot of, I think, what I when it's taken me some, I'll be honest about this, like, I've learned over time, like, seeing the deer we kill, and I've realized, like, particularly some of the really large deer, and anybody over here in 44, guys, will tell you the same, same thing. A lot of these really big deer, people never see them until they're dead. And what it is is that, they uh, they're actually a lot more migratory than people think. Like I used to think that in a lot of this country, like I don't know, let's take forty four. I used to think that the deer would just migrate up to the top of the drainages that run into the Vale Valley, right? Uh, these deer go. I mean, I know, and they they did some studies. It's been a long it's been a long time since they did them. But when they were putting in the the game fence on Highway seventy, and then. You know, at one point they were thinking about putting in a ski resort up Brush Creek in Eagle. When I was a little kid, it was actually on the ranch that, that I spent part of my childhood on. They were going to develop that ranch into a ski resort, so they were doing all these studies on deer. Well, what they found is that these deer, you know, on the in the Eagle Valley slash Vale Valley there, they don't just go up into the drainages up on the, the high elevation stuff and the Holy Cross and all that. Some of them do, but a lot of them go way past that. You know, there could be deer down here, you know, in the subdivisions of Eagle that spend their summer, you know, over there close to Aston. you know. Um, so what I've learned is in these units, you got to, if you hunt them a while, particularly if you hunt them like early third, and then when, that rut, the, when the rut starts, they're kind of where they're going to end up being. But early third, late second, if you really pay attention where deer move on the corridors, You'll, end up, you'll see deer that don't live there, and you end up killing them. And I can tell you, if I'm being totally transparent about it, most of the really big deer that I've killed yeah, I've never seen before. Um, you know, or maybe I saw them like a couple of days before. You know what I mean?
0: Um, so they're so there they're, they're one day and gone the next, but what you're saying is if you know where they travel through going to their rutting grounds, You catch them, and you know you and your guys kind of know those areas, and you've paid attention to where those deer might be. But you've got to kill them when you see them.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And then in the the later you go in third, and then as you go in fourth, it's even more so the case. When you see them, you got to decide if you want to kill it or not, because you it's it's very there's just as good a chance tomorrow that deer has run off to another set of does or something. (laughs) And so you have that dynamic third season a lot of times they're just moving through to wherever they want to end up but you know uh, the one trick that i've used and i I, you know i I haven't ever heard of much uh other folks talking about it but if you go to areas in colorado or any of these western states when the green up in the spring starts like just when the first green up in the high country starts going the the green grass is basically fall in the snow watch where those deer are headed up and they use the exact same spots to come back, come back out in late fall. So if you look That's at, some, if you look at a hillside and uh, you know it's greening up, and like you know this hillside you're looking at, no deer moving across it, but you look at another another side, and the, you know all the bucks with little stumpy velvet on them and, and does just are moving across it like caribou. They're gonna come back. They may, they may come back more in like a trickle but they come back the exact same path almost it's pretty amazing
0: yeah that's so if you a go back really and
1: if you go, if you observed. go if you go hunt those those spring like what I call like green up corridors they're pretty much the same spots where third season and stuff you you if you you know you may hunt elk in there first and second season and see very little for deer and then it's like boom like there's but deer start trickling through the same spots
0: Interesting,
1: interesting. And well, the guys, guys know neat. that. Like, the the guys that kill these big deer in 44 during second season and 35 during second season and stuff, that's exactly how they hunt
0: them. Interesting. Talk a little bit about your elk hunting um, there, whether it be archery, uh, you know, throughout the seasons there on the flat tops.
1: Yeah, so in archery, <clears throat> I tend to use... Um, in the spectrum of drop camps, I tend to use very high elevation camps. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of archery uh, guiding because myself and my guides are so busy with uh, goat and sheep guiding. And then this year we're going to do some, some bear guiding too. Uh, I tend to do, my kind of my archery elk stuff is mainly do-it-yourself drop camp stuff. I try to get people way back in there. The majority of those camps are two and a half, three plus hours uh, horseback ride in there. Um, and <clears throat> the the elk, I mean, the flat tops, I mean, I think it's not telling anybody anything anything new. There's a ton of elk there. It's a, you know, the White River herd is, I believe they they still call it the, the largest herd in, in North America. Um, but it's a lot of country, and it's almost all very good elk habitat. So your density is pretty, you know, it's spread out, so you have to find them. Um, but it's not really tough topography either. Once you're up there, you can get around. Um, if you're patient, you know, and you find elk and you're careful about, about, you know, not messing them up, um, you can have a pretty good archery hunt. Um, and then that time of year also, it's just a great time to be, be up there. It's my favorite time for sure. Um,
0: and what was the other part of that question, Jay? Well, just your elk hunting Oh, in general. Just elk hunting so you have in arch- general? archery, yep. muzzleloader, first season, second, you know, you have all the different yep.
1: seasons. sure. And so muzzleloader kind of is under that same umbrella, pretty much the same time of year, that second week of September. Uh, there's a week of muzzleloader. It's the same deal for us. All my units, they draw, you know, three to five points for non-resident muzzleloader, so you do have to have the points to do it. It is a lot higher success than <laughs> than the straight archery hunts, just because of the the, the weapon, obviously. Um, on my rifle hunts, my rifle stuff is, so first season, I that season is usually... There's not a whole lot of variance year to year. Um, you know, first season, we usually don't have like elk moving accumulations on the top yet. So each year it's pretty much about, about the, about the same. Um, you're hunting a lot of country still because the elk are spread out. Um, but it's a good time to be up there. Usually not fighting a ton of really extreme weather. Um, we still hunt the higher camps. So it's beautiful open country, um, and it's elk only. So that one's pretty consistent year to year. You know, our guided stuff is going to be, you know, 65% success rate roughly. Our drop camps are going to be in that band of 40 to 55%. Um, and then as you go into second and third, it's really variable on, on snow accumulation on the top. A year like uh, 2018, third and fourth season for my guided guys, i mean almost everybody shot at a bull if not if not more than more than one so um but in the polar opposite of that you know in the year like 2017 where all your country is still open you don't have snow accumulation um but now the elk have been hunted a fair amount you know second and third season, third season you know you can get you can get sub 50 percent success rate if it's just brutally dry in those years are, are the anomaly but it's you know, there's variability based on that just because that country there's so much that like it's just like a slinky in terms of how much um um how much country the elk can be in. You know the deer seem to always move the same every year. Yeah, the snow will move them quicker and earlier, but the elk it's just just a matter of how much of the country's closed up with snow. Um, so that's what you find. Usually fourth season, our elk are down, and I don't do a whole lot of hunting. i do, I do those guided out of our lodge. Um, in the success rate, it's generally pretty pretty darn high, uh, but a guy's got to be willing to
0: to ride every day and, and, and hunt pretty hard. Just to be clear, your second and third season for elk is over the counter, correct? Yeah, so second
1: and third season over the counter, and fourth season is kind of like our third season deer tag. I mean, you're probably going to draw it, draw it, but it's no guarantee. You know, yeah. and then like the the I guess the other question on that is guys ask me about quality a lot on elk. Um, you know, all these, these wilderness, uh, units that are in the San Juans, the flat tops, all the big wilderness, they're going to be managed pretty similar. Um, so your average bull is going to be a five by five, um, that kind of bull, you know, one at a, I mean, if I added up all the bulls we've killed in the last decade or whatever, you know, one out of 10, one out of 12 is going to be a 300, 315 inch bull, you know, a 325 inch bull, 330 inch bull is like a, is a, Is a massive wilderness bull in Colorado. Uh, We do kill them, but it's not it's not the norm. Um, And what you'll find, you know, we found this last year, Jay. Like, and I think I we chatted about a little bit before. (laughs) Is you have like in the wilder in the wilderness units, your your elk in particular, like the inventory. Like, if you have years where the snow doesn't help guys kill them in the rifle season, you'll get years where like your quality like all the bulls you kill are a year older because nobody, you know, the the harvest was so low the year before. So for 18, that was a year for us. We, kill, we killed way more bulls over 300 inches than, you know, like right at that 300-inch mark uh, than we than we typically do. And then we killed a lot of just bigger, you know, a lot instead of killing a bunch of 5x5s, five we killed a lot of small 6s, stuff like that. And that's just a function of, you know, just holdover bulls, you know.
0: Do you think that this year, you know, with the success you had last year, do you think um, your quality will be back more to the average, you know, five points and the one-year younger bull, or do you think there'll still be some of those holdover bulls? Well, I know there's still
1: some of the holdover bulls because we, you know, we saw them particularly late when they're accumulating, and then they all got down really low early this year because of the snow. So I saw them before they lost antlers, and they're still, you know, I'd say they're still above average. Um, but that's probably because not only did we have 17 was rough, I mean, 16 was too, you know. So there's probably, you know, some to go. It's probably going to be middle road would be my best guess. It's not going to be, quality's not going to be as good as 18, but it's, it's going to be above average if you look at it over the last 10 years or whatever because there's still a bunch of bulls that have been able to grow up.
0: Have you seen all of your deer and all of your elk? Um, has everything across the board drop their antlers or are you still seeing sporadic uh, bucks and bulls carrying yeah some bulls still have them the
1: all the deer i've seen have lost them
0: okay okay um let's talk about uh sheep and goat um i know you love both of those talk a little bit about uh the amount of guiding you do and some of the areas and what have you
1: yeah so i think uh between myself and a couple of my guides, we do about six to nine of those a year. Um, it's tilted toward goats for sure. I think the last three or four years we've done 5 goat hunts or so at least a year. Um, you know, I, talking specific units, uh, you know, the main the main ones that I'm familiar with are going to be the ones on the collegians um, that I guide for. I guide um, for a friend over there, and then. Um, G12 in the Maroon Bells is going to be one significant for people looking at the draw because there's so many tags in there, and then 13 kind of between the Collegiate units and then um, the Maroon Bells stuff on Independence Pass there. So um, all the units that are like G2, G3, um uh, G13. I mean, the other one we'll talk about is G6, which is kind of it's over here at Avail, but it's kind of on its own. Um, the collegiate units. There's not a lot of change in them. Those are all. Those are all really good hunts. G2 and G13 in particular. Um, in terms of how goat hunts go, they're all going to be physical, you know, Jay. But those two hunts, you know, like are probably the least physical of the of the goat hunts that, that at least I do and that's because you can get a lot of the elevation on four-wheel drive roads. There's big, big Jeep, you know, Jeep uh, uh, road system over there, so you can get up and at least get some of the elevation behind you. You can glass from the road a lot of the time, stuff like that. So, But those units also draw very difficult. G2, I know, doesn't have any uh, non-resident tags. And then G13 is probably going to draw the... I, Close to the hardest goat tag for a non-resident, but there's there's quite a few tags in there. So um, that's on that end. G12, that one's been changing a lot. Um, you spend some time in the Maroon Bells, right? You know, around Maroon Lake, over to Crested Butte. Yeah, in that. the summer hiking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that's I mean, I can't I can't imagine there's anywhere uh, maybe prettier on Earth, but uh, well, maybe maybe some of the stuff you end up in the Northwest Territories, right? Yeah, I Something mean, but like that, it's
0: but... pretty hard to it's pretty hard to beat that Bruin bells, man. It's you know, especially yeah. with the wildflowers and stuff. It's a it's an incredible place for sure.
1: Yeah, it's a stunning place to hunt, um, but uh, they you know the the management strategy there in the last three or four years has been to reduce the goat population pretty pretty heavily. So there's a bunch of tags in there. Um, I think. It just depends on how you want to view it. Uh, I'll be honest with you, it's not my favorite hunt to guide, but it's still fun. Um, and you have to weigh that against the fact that you can that it's way easier to draw than a lot of the other tags. So if you really want to go goat hunting, it's not a bad one. You just have to realize that there's two things about it. One, you know, the easy goats in there have become more and more difficult because there's been a lot of harvest, and then the terrain in there is just and a lot of parts of it are just scary, you know. So you have to keep keep that in mind. Um, and then there are, you know, it's like I think when people put in for goats, uh, sheep, and moose, they don't think about a competitive hunting environment. You know what I mean? Most people think, you know, it's been 20 years for me to draw this thing. Um, I'm not going to have to compete with other hunters. Uh, in there, you're, you're going to have to deal with that. And then, uh, you know, a lot of our sheep units are like that too, to be honest with you, Jay. Like, people don't realize, they think, that uh, it's their once-in-lifetime tag and um, there's not going to be any other competition. But it can be, because they're so, <clears throat> you know, they end up being uh, pretty concentrated, you can end up uh, kind of on top of other guys. So G12, to me, is kind of the epitome of that on goats, at least. Um, but it's a good one. you got to wait with the fact that the draw your way higher. Um, sheep stuff, you know, probably the most notable thing on sheep is that my unit in the flat-tops, uh, it does have a non-resident tag this year. Uh, that's S59, um, and it's a good hunt. It's you know, the, I would say the one thing about 59 is that it's one of the it's one of the few sheep hunts in Colorado that you're probably going to do horseback, um, and that's how we do them. Um, they're fun hunts. I can't tell you that there's any really big sheep in there. I think an expectation of a 160 inch ram is probably about right for S59, but it's going to be easier to draw. Um, the terrain, as long as you can deal with the horseback stuff and you enjoy, you know, doing the backcountry, uh, camp and dealing wall tents, the terrain's pretty mild for sheep country. I mean, it's a, it's a plateau, right? So it's not, you know, it's still mountains, but it's pretty easy to get around. It's wide open stuff. Um, so there, it's a good hunt. I guided one of the hunters last year in there. Um, and then S2 over here in Vale, uh, also, put in a uh, a uh, non-resident sheep tag for this year. And uh, that's a good one, but you need to be in backpack, physical shape. Like, go in and be hunting out of your backpack for five, six days to really take advantage of what's in there. Um, it's got, like, a micro-population of sheep. I think my personal opinion is there's probably only 35 sheep or something like that in a whole unit. So you gotta be you got to go, go find them, you know. Um and they oh I guess I, I didn't mention G six over there too, it overlaps with S two. That's a good one. I think it's only resident tags this year. But the uh, same deal, the goat unit, but you gotta be that that's more of a hunt for a guy that's really willing to do the physical the physical stuff. There's once you go in there you're not coming out until you until you kill a goat is the idea. Not a, not a day
0: hunting deal, you know. Cliff, uh I had heard you mention, and I didn't um, ask about it, but you said you're going to do a few more bear hunts this year as well. Uh, Are there opportunities if guys want to call you for some bear hunting? Yeah, so um, I have a a
1: handful of them left, but I have booked uh, quite a few, which is awesome, and uh, they'll be fun hunts, Uh, Jay. I'm going to do them. Part of them I'm going to do from our, our lodge, and then the other set of them I'll probably do from like a road-accessible wall tent camp. Uh, they're three-day hunts. Um, you know, there's going to be a little variability uh, just based on what the what the feed conditions for bears look like this year. But if it's anything last like the last couple of years, um, three days should be shouldn't shouldn't be a problem. Um, you know, but uh, but those we've been kind of figuring out too over the the last couple of years Fall bears are weird I mean I don't know If you've ever hunted them But you got to Really key in On what they're eating And then just be Patient um, It's amazing To me it's amazing Particularly in the fall How far bears will go <clears throat> To find a feed source That they're Specifically looking for And then when you do Find that feed source You can have You know You can have certain Acorn patches and stuff That 20 different bears Are hitting at night You know but if you're looking at the wrong wrong feed source or whatever, you can spend a lot of time
0: looking at nothing.
1: So I don't have you
0: ever hunted them, Jay? You know, not a whole lot. I did uh, shoot one last year over on the Ot six, and we have okay. got a bunch of bears, and so I was able to actually see a bunch of them and and kind of check them out. and they're pretty neat animals um, to, to be honest with you, I think they're <laughs> pretty cool. You know, oh, they're awesome. From a glassing, do their yeah thing. glassing, yeah to watch them do their thing. It's pretty neat. Um, yeah, Cliff, I also want to ask you about True Hunts, and I know that's probably a whole nother podcast. But I know you have really gotten into the OWDAD, and and you've got a whole nother operation outside of Colorado where you uh, set up hunts. Um, can you talk briefly about that?
1: Yeah, so everything I do under True Hunts. Uh this it, you know, really I set it up for some for some business reasons but also just uh partly because I kinda had to because of all my federal permitting with the flat tops wilderness guys. I had kinda had to separate what I was doing in Canada and then what I was doing in uh Texas. So um the majority of that business is the odd hunting and then uh, bear hunting in Canada. Um some of it I do do on a booking basis, but I always try to be there, um, for most of those hunts. So for instance instance, like the ad hunts, uh, I got back, I guess now it's been three weeks, but I went down to you know northern West Texas, uh, and I was down there for for three weeks and we did a bunch of odd ad hunts, and I guide some of those, and then I try to work with the, the best guys I can find, uh, particularly on Audad it's all about where you know the ranches, how they're managed, all that. I mean, it's very similar probably to to how your coos deer hunting is set up, right? I mean, your location makes a huge difference um Audad are Audad are a fun hunt and the great thing about them from my perspective is that they're they're in the off season from like all the deer elk all of that stuff um and uh they're just a new a new species but it really matters where you're going they're, that's probably a hunt like particularly if you're wanting to kill big ones which that's most people who are hunting all that's a that's a huge factor um it makes a huge difference which ranches you're hunting um and how they've been managed all the how they manage predators on those ranches all of that makes it makes a huge difference um and I actually actually on a bunch of the oddad, i've been trying to i'm such a nerd about these things you know jay but on the oddad, i've been trying to there's not one thing that's interesting about them is there's not a lot of research on them and a lot of the academic work is like 30 years old it's you know, 50 years old when, Just when they were reintroducing them Into Texas and that sort of thing So uh, I actually pulled a bunch of teeth on them And I'm gonna, you know they, You can't ring them, like uh, you can't age them By rings, uh, the rings are really Hard to age on their, their they have them Like uh, Like bighorns, but the, they have Like tons of false annuli It's really, it's for me it's very difficult I, I can't see how you could age them that way So I pulled a bunch of their teeth and uh, And I'm gonna see exactly what those big rams, how old they are, because I've heard all sorts of different information. But anyways, back to the, the point, um, I, I, I am starting to book those those for 2020, and I do them in the same, I'm going to do them in the same time period, probably in early February to, to late February next year. Um, the bear stuff, um, same deal. I, there's basically two guys I've been working with in BC, uh, all booked up for this year
0: i think well that's not actually true i think i have a couple
1: spots there in the coastal mountains i could still book but outside of that we're looking at 2020
0: awesome cliff uh you're always a wealth of information um you still are the only person i know that graduated from stanford university so that's that's my claim to fame (laughs) as i say i know someone that that actually graduated from there uh and uh i i love uh seeing all the stuff you do on instagram and i appreciate you being a resource here for us uh, talking about the colorado draw I, i'm still in the back of my mind thinking about the third season deer hunts um just yeah, you, can't, that, you, you know it's you can't basically a hundred percent draw for a third season tag and i know some of the bucks you guys killed so uh, i want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can reach out to you how they can follow along and uh, learn more about what you do yeah so the
1: Probably the main points of contact for me are the website, which is ftguides.com, dot com, and then True Hunts you mentioned just truehunts.com. dot com, and then on Instagram it's Cliff C L I F F G R Y, um, and as you as you as you pinpoint all the time, I made a typo on that one. I guess I set up the account. There's no A in there, so it's Cliff G R Y, no vowel in my last name. But uh, anyways, uh, those are your those are your best. Uh, <laughs> the best ways to get a hold of me and yeah if anybody has questions they can give me a ring i'd love to chat with them and i appreciate you having me um I, you know what, I, i've been following your uh your instagram too I, you've been you've been hiking camelback huh
0: well i've been yeah i've been hiking camelback um not very well it's actually a pretty technical mountain there's actually quite yeah I've, a few. I've done it a, i've done it a few times yeah, no, it's it's the real deal. I mean, we actually, my wife and I were hiking the other day and got up coming from Choya Trail, got up on, you know, on the east side and we're coming up just past the helipad and we're kind of looking up and we actually watched a lady fall off that cliff face that's um, kind of facing the helipad, literally t- somersaulted. Uh, she had trekking poles and, you know, I don't know what happened, but she went he- literally head first. <clears throat> and rolled probably 25 feet down that thing, and, man, I scurried up there as fast as I could to see, you know, what was going to be left of her, and her husband was there, and she was from out of state, and really shook up, and, um, yeah, okay, it'll get your attention, yeah, she was okay, she was banged up, um, she, they didn't have to helicopter her out, but, uh, she was banged up and bleeding and what have you. But, um, yeah, it's uh, we've got some great hiking around, um, you know, in the McDowell, Camelback, uh, you know, Squaw Peak. Uh, there's there's some really good uh, urban hiking trails around. But Camelback's definitely one of the more technical ones with some of those rock faces and stuff. But uh, Yeah, it's a yeah. good exercise. I know
1: there's usually, there's like a section that has a pole on it. And uh, yeah. I've gotten close to eating it on that spot a couple times, actually.
0: But, uh,
1: yeah but yeah
0: no well you you colorado you colorado boys could do that in your sleep but uh yeah it's nice to have those places to be able to hike around and um uh, it'll be good to see you when i get back up there this summer and uh do some fishing i'll have to uh, come by and uh uh, take you to lunch or something, but it's always great having you on the podcast. I uh, appreciate what you do, and uh, encourage the listeners to reach out to Cliff if you've got any questions about uh, Flat Tops Wilderness Guides and anything else that we discussed today. So um, take care, buddy, okay? Yeah, Thanks, you. All right, buddy. God bless.